another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Indigenous Roots and Hoots is about people and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create better awareness about Indigenous people to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is Professor Peter Kolchiski. Peter is a professor in the Department of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. He is a scholar and activist who has worked with Indigenous social justice communities and groups, especially in Northern Canada, for over four decades. He is co-director with Diana Taylor of the Canadian Consortium on Performance and Politics in the Americas. He has also published extensively on Northern Indigenous history, law, politics, and culture in Canada. Among his books are Like the Sound of a Drum, Aboriginal Cultural Politics in Denende and Nunavut, and Report of an Inquiry into an Injustice, Begade Shetugatin in the Sautu Treaty. He is currently working on a third volume in a series co-authored with Frank Tester on contemporary Inuit history, as well as a study of the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which will be a most fascinating read when published. As Peter has said, wherever I've been, wherever I've gone, I've been a troublemaker. And as an activist fighting for Indigenous people, this is a badge he wears with honour. Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to another podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. My name is Gordon Spence, your host, and today my guest is Professor Peter Kolchinski from the University of Manitoba in the Native Studies Department. What subject areas do you teach? So I teach interdisciplinary courses, but my, you know, my PhD was in politics. So I teach kind of, I would say, politics, law, culture, and history, those sort of four areas, and with a special emphasis on the far north of Canada, where I've done a lot of research in a little bit in the Yukon, the Northwest Territories, and, uh, and Nunavut, as well as the mid-north, you know, northern Manitoba and northern Ontario a little bit. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, Peter. You're also a, a co-director of the uh, Canadian Consortium on Performance and Politics in the Americas. Can you explain to us what this is about? I don't know, about 15 years ago, the major sort of funding platforms for academics started to change. And one thing they developed were these mega partnership grants, two and a half million dollars over seven years was what you could get for them. And um, basically, they decided they wanted academics to have their own teams and to fund their own projects rather than fund every little project themselves. So they packaged it up into these big things. So I actually was the principal investigator. I wrote the application, got the funding um, for this Canadian Consortium on Performance and Politics in the Americas, which was linked a bunch of Canadian institutions, some U.S. institutions, and some institutions from Latin Latin America, uh, who were interested in um, sort of performance art, but performance very broadly seen, and uh, you know performance for social change or performance for uh, for resistance. Um, uh, there had been so the main other institution was called the Hemispheric Institute for Performance and Politics out of New York University, and so it was an opportunity for me and some other Canadians uh, to sort of bring Canadian content into this hemisphere, and instead of thinking of Canada as you know uh, a fragment of Europe or thinking of you know BC is connected through the Pacific to Asia, we wanted to start thinking about how would we think about Canada if we imagined ourselves as citizens of the Americas. 
and if we put ourselves in you know closer conversation with um, you know people from Central and South America, and then you know, my own interest was to do that um, uh, to bring the indigenous peoples, you know, to compare indigenous realities, to see what different kind of legal systems existed in different places, to look at what what kinds of resistances people were engaged in as indigenous people across the Americas. That and the fact that it was fairly um, theoretically or oriented um, meant that uh, uh, it was useful for me intellectually. It broadened my own horizons, and you know we brought a lot of people together. Every couple of years, the Hemispheric Institute had what they called an encuentro, which basically means a gathering or a conference. And so it was a cultural, but also academic festival where you'd have you know very good performance artists like Rebecca Belmore from Canada, for example, or Thompson Highway, who does theater. Uh, but you'd have, you know, uh, 10 days where there'd be a, uh, a main performance every evening, lots of smaller performances through the day, academic panels and sessions, and activist discussions all going on at the same time. When I first went to that a version of that conference in Brazil, Blorazon J uh, is where I went, I just thought this was the best thing ever. Like we need more of this, getting artists, academic and activists together and just sort of sharing ideas and spinning ideas and developing networks and connections. So that's what that, uh, that's about. I'm no longer the co-director. After the seven years, I found a junior person. I'm very big on um, mentoring people to take over so that I'm not, you know, whenever I die, and I believe that's going to happen, um, you know, uh, there'll be someone there to help do the kinds of things that I do. So there's um, a, a woman, Laura Levin, who's actually in performance studies at York University, is uh, has sort of, after the seven years, she applied for the renewal of the grant. I didn't apply for a renewal of it, and, uh, but I'm still involved. You have published extensively on various Native issues and subjects. Is there one that stands out to you which has a special meaning? It's hard for me to pick one, I would say. I mean, two pieces that are shorter pieces that seem to have had a lot of impact. One is called What is Native Studies? I was honored when the University of Saskatchewan asked me to, as a non-Aboriginal person, to write what my views of what Native Studies is. And so that one still gets used in lots of classrooms and I think was a, an interesting challenge for me to take on. And then uh, that was about 1999, around, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I wrote a piece called um, Aboriginal Rights or Not Human Rights uh, to look at the difference between human rights discourse and Aboriginal rights discourse, because I found that with the, the United Nations Declaration, those two were being confused. And that one also gets um, uh, read fairly widely, I think. And I think um, that was also sort of written to, because more activists in Canada were finally getting involved in Indigenous issues. You know, when I started in the 1980s, like as a graduate student working seriously around Indigenous issues, I have always also always been an activist. So I was engaged in activist activities. And I don't know if you'll remember too, Gord, but in the, the 80s and 90s, you know, you get 25 people out there for a protest and you pretty much have to get arrested to get any publicity. So I you know, was a part of groups of people who got arrested a few times uh, while I was a, a junior professor, um, because that's the only way you could get any attention. It seems to me sort of around 2009, when the Kichinomekasib and Inuwag leadership, the Big Trout Lake leaders, you know, when the band council was put in jail for defying a court injunction, for the first time we saw huge protests in Toronto and Montreal. And so, and I noticed a lot of people coming to those protests 
had very strong anti-racism backgrounds in Toronto, especially and in Montreal. So they they knew a lot. They had read a lot about racism, and so they were just applying that to Indigenous peoples. And yes, racism is one of the issues that affects Indigenous peoples. But the issue is not for Indigenous peoples. It's not about gaining equality rights, which also could equal assimilation. That's what Trudeau tried with the white paper. The issue was, you know, asserting Aboriginal and treaty rights and having those respected properly. And so I wrote that piece, Aboriginal Rights Are Not Human Rights, sort of to explain to anti-racist activists that they were in a slightly different ballgame here and they needed to, you know, pay attention to that. It, it came to me because we formed an organization in 2009 called Defenders of the Land. And that group was writing sort of its statement of the basis of unity. And I noticed at some point when they were circulating the different drafts that they had dropped all mention of Aboriginal and treaty rights because young leftist people don't like to talk about human rights because George Bush had sort of so abused the term that people felt it was, you know, neoliberal or a bad idea. So when I showed this to the Indigenous members of the circle, they were all shocked. It's like, we can't not have Indigenous and Aboriginal treaty rights in our basis of unity. And so that's what sort of triggered for me writing this article that eventually became a little book to explain to people the difference between Aboriginal and human rights. Can you talk to us about some of your other books that you've written about Indigenous issues, like The Sound of a Drum yep. or The Report of an Inquiry into an Injustice? Uh, so it's a distillation of much of the theory that I had read and then much of the work that I had done with Dene and Inuit peoples. So it's based, uh, there's a, some theoretical chapters and then there's a chapter on, um, you know, the community of Fort Good Hope, the community of Fort Simpson and the community of Pangerton in the none of it. And that book was written or drafted before none of it was even made, and then none of it got created, and I had to, on the fly, sort of change how I you know, treated that. Um, and so I would say that's the most kind of comprehensive statement of my intellectual views and the readings that I've done and brought to bear on understanding Indigenous politics. Um, report of an inquiry into an injustice, the Gadeshitakadene and the Sati Treaty, is more like a focused book that looks at one specific group of Dene people in the Northwest Territories, the Begade Shuteke Dene, that's the Dene of the Keel River, the mountain Dene of the Keel River area, we could say. And uh, a modern treaty was negotiated in the region, the land area that they lived in, and they didn't want to be a part of it. They did not want to surrender their title to their land. And so, but they were just ignored by the government. And so I wrote that book to sort of uh, partly I did extensive work with one particular elder, Paul Wright, and then follow-up work with sort of the next generations of elders that came along. And to me, it seems like, I guess the thing I'd say about both of these books and about much of my work is, like, I love going into the North. I like going into communities. And when I'm there, I like going out onto the land with people. That's what, and watching, sort of learning what obstacles people face in trying to have a land-based lifestyle. And, uh, you know, what kinds of things can maybe be done to promote the land-based lifestyle, because for me, the culture ultimately, in large measure, depends upon having people who are on the land and who are practicing the culture in their daily life. So I learned to have great love and respect for Indigenous cultures. So going out on the land with people became sort of one of the things that I still try and do whenever I go to, even if I'm going into northern Manitoba. And uh, some communities, if I do some free consulting for them, I'll ask them to pay me in meat, give me some fish or give me some meat or something like that. And they're always very happy to do that and they understand the importance of that. So, um, yeah, something like that. 
That's awesome. That is awesome, Peter. Uh, exchanging uh, your knowledge, your your opinions and views for some meat and fish. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> good. I I wanted to. I was looking at your 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 bio and uh, you're writing about contemporary Inuit history. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, a sneak preview. So I have two co-authored books with a guy named Frank Tester. He's a social work professor now retired at UBC. So we wrote two books based on both archival research and on traveling to the Inuit communities. One is called Tamarnit Mistakes that came out, uh, I think, in the late 90s. And then a second one was called Kiumayuk, Talking Back, and that came out uh, in uh, the mid-nothings, somewhere in there. And so we have, uh, we're about two-thirds of the way through a third book. And basically, all of these books, you know, we developed, uh, we went to a lot of archives. Frank probably did about 70% or 80% of the archival research and a lot of communities. And we're just kind of have slowly mined all that material to tell something of the post-war history of the Inuit, how they went from basically a completely land-based lifestyle to sort of, you know, the, the current uh, settlement-oriented uh, lifestyle and, you know, the Nunavut Agreement. Really are, so I'd say we're covering the period from about 1945 to about 1970 or 71, when sort of modern Inuit organizations start to develop. And so... I wrote sort of the legal-oriented chapters of those studies. Um, you know, we divided up the the kind of work. Actually, I think the latest volume that we're still away, a little ways from finishing, but I think it looks more at snapshots and tries to more deeply sort of see the cultural dynamics by looking at some kind of incidents that were really striking things that sort of fell out of the archives for us that we realized were almost like standalone stories, but we could tell them all one after another, and that would also help help people. So that's a book that I'm working on now. I'm also going to mention, I'm on sabbatical this year, and separate from that, I'm working on um, uh, a full-length study of the Royal Proclamation of 1763. So that doesn't appear in my bio because I haven't said much about it, but I'm well along in, um, you know, there's lots written about the Royal Proclamation in almost every court case that goes forward. There's even a book that was published on the anniversary of the Royal Proclamation, but it's stunning to me that not many people know about the, you know, how the Royal Proclamation came to be. I don't think I've seen any scholarly studies that look at different drafts of the Royal Proclamation. There's a bunch of stuff there. So um, that's also, I thought of that as a late career book. I had this idea in my head for a long time. I feel I'm a late career person now. So that's another one that I'm working on. Uh I was going to ask you about the Royal Proclamation of 1763, um, but just before I want a clarification on that in a minute. Uh, but I just wanted to comment on uh, when you were talking about uh, contemporary Inuit history and the period that you're talking about. Uh, I've talked to a number of Inuit who tell me that for thousands of years they lived in igloos and uh, tents for thousands of years, literally thousands of years. And uh, with very, you know, very little change in that period, that long period of time. And then you, you, you fast forward to 1930s, I guess, uh, 20s, and within a 50 year period, they've gone from uh, igloos uh, to boardrooms basically in such, a, in such a short period of time, which is to me is quite amazing. Um, so I just I just wanted to like um, comment on that part. Yeah, so, uh, just, let me just 
like I, I do want to say, I think um, there's something truly remarkable about that history and about um, you know the the generation of Inuit who went through and saw that change in their lifetime. Uh, I also, like for a good chunk of my career, more than, well, nearly 20 years, I ran um, a field school, a bush school, I called it, on Baffin Island in Pangatung. So I, I'm, you know, uh, Inuktitut Liniorama. I'm an intermediate, probably, Inuktitut speaker. I learned some while I was up there. I have great admiration for the, especially the hunting families in Nunavut. And, you know, I've gone out on the land with many, many people. And just one little thing I would say, you know, we just opened this, um, uh, uh, Inuit Art Center in the Winnipeg Art Gallery. You know, if you think about how many really world-class artists there are among Inuit people and how small the population is, to me that that says something about the degree of creativity that being a hunter actually requires or being a part of a hunting family requires. Like your ability to think kind of laterally or in very different ways. You know, I, I, I've been repeatedly impressed by that among Inuit people. You go to the land, you don't have something, you find something else to serve that purpose. Like, uh, it's just extraordinary people. And you're right, like we're documenting a history that's very dramatic period for Inuit people. Yeah, a lot of people would think that Inuit are very simple people, but uh, they're actually quite extraordinary and uh, ingenious in many ways of uh, creating things that will help them uh, survive they've uh, they've invented and created so many amazing things that are are you know are copied today um just moving forward a little bit and uh, you touched on uh, uh for people that don't know what the role of proclamation of 1763 is maybe just uh, explain what that is so in 1763 after the um, seven years war which in the u.s textbooks is called the French and Indian War. The English, like the Battle of the Plains of Abraham was in 1759. Basically, the English beat the French in North America. And so the war was officially ended with what was called the Treaty of Paris. You can tell who lost the European war because the treaty is always signed in the capital of the loser because the winning army marches into town, right? So the Treaty of Paris was signed in about January of 1763. So the King of England was suddenly taking possession of New France and of some parts of Louisiana uh, and some parts of the Caribbean. So he had to establish governors for those territories. So by the fall, he got around to doing that. So he wrote this royal proclamation. And the first half of it says, you know, we're going to appoint a governor to New France. This is what it's going to be called. We're appointing a governor here. We're appointing a governor there. So the, the armies that are in those places are going to uh, leave and they'll turn it over to a civilian administration because we're not fighting a war anymore. The army doesn't need to be in control. But about half of that document, the other half of that document dealt with indigenous land rights. And basically it says that lands to the west of the headwaters flowing into the Atlantic are Indian lands, and they can only be surrendered by the Indians in a gathering to uh, the crown. And that came about because, so there was a guy, Sir William Johnson, who married a woman, uh, Molly Brandt. She was Mohawk. He was Irish. They became like a power couple. He became the superintendent general of Indian affairs, and he worked closely with the Mohawks. He adopted lots of their ways, would dress like a Mohawk. He could speak the language. He could give, you know, uh, speeches in following the protocols. And so he was, to a certain degree, sympathetic. And what he saw happening was people going and just 
you know, for a couple of bottles of alcohol or whatever, getting a signature for some random person on a piece of paper and saying, okay, now I own all these thousands of acres. You've sold it to me. And so William Johnson, that, that's not right. That can't, we can't, you know, let people surrender these huge amounts of land just for a pittance or maybe a one-year supply or something. When other people from the same nation also have a claim on that land. We need a more regular system. So we said the Crown has to be involved in any land surrenders if they're going to take place at all. And we need a hard border so that um, Aboriginal lands are not disturbed. Basically, he knew that the British Crown didn't want to fight any more wars. And they had just also encountered Pontiac's rebellion. So the Royal Proclamation is sometimes called the Treaty of Treaties. It's based on the Royal Proclamation that the eventual treaties uh, were signed with the Crown's representative, with an attempts to assemble the First Nations peoples, um, and you know different understandings of what went on. But the fact that they were negotiated at all, to a certain extent, owes to the Royal Proclamation as a legal document that set out a framework for saying private people shouldn't be buying land off of Indigenous peoples. Uh, the land should be seen as theirs until they, you know, they feel like they're prepared to sell it, and only the crown can um, buy it from them. So it established the principle that the highest authority in a in a political system, uh, so the thirteen colonies, that would be the colonial office in England. When Canada became Canada, we adopted that idea from the Royal Proclamation into Canada when we said that. Um, the federal government, not the provincial governments, is responsible for Aboriginal affairs. That's basically an idea that comes out of the Royal Proclamation that ends up in Canada. Of course, also, the Royal Proclamation had the status of a legal statute, like a law, endorsed by the king, and the Royal Proclamation was never revoked. So, in fact, it's still in force and is mentioned in the Canada Act of 1982, specifically in Section 25. Um, uh, they mentioned the, the rights guaranteed by the Royal Proclamation. But every single court case dealing with Aboriginal land rights in Canada, and many of them dealing with other issues, will cite the Royal Proclamation. So the Royal Proclamation is there in the Calder case. It's there in the Gitsan Wet'suwet'en case. It's there in the Chilcotin case, which are probably the three most famous recent land rights cases going back to the last 50 years. But many, many other cases, even back to the Re-Eskimos case that, you know, in 1939 said uh, Inuit people were also covered by Section 9124 of the BNA. So it's a bit technical, but basically it's about a five-page document. About half of it deals with Aboriginal land rights, and it's one of the founding constitutional documents of Canada. This question is more about... Um... It's a little different than uh, maybe your uh, what you teach. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. Um, but it's about uh, it's something that's always interested me and in, in how it was created, and uh, you know how uh, foreign governments came into the Americas and uh, and took whatever they could take. Uh, you know all the lands and, and and all the gold and silver and all that kind of stuff. This thing called the Doctrine of Discovery was created by who? Can you can you touch on this? I just want our audience to uh, be aware of this Doctrine of Discovery that was created that I think sure. allowed that give forgiveness for for all this that happened to, to the indigenous people. Even, um, we could say that it's what um, underwrote what was taking place for sure, and it so it goes back to some papal bulls that the Pope wrote in order to divide South America, which was then sort of what everyone was paying attention to, between the Portuguese, 
um, and the Spanish who were vying for control. So basically the Portuguese got what's now Brazil and they, they set it up as one country and the Spanish got much of the rest of Central and South America and it ended up being different regimes that became separate countries. But um, in terms of in English language law, the doctrine of discovery got articulated by Justice James Marshall, famous uh, Supreme Court judge in the United States in the 1820s and 30s. And he basically said that, um, you know, the, the Europeans were civilized and indigenous people weren't. When Europeans came and planted their flag, it meant that whoever planted their, pla their flag first discovered a place, and then they had the right to deal with the indigenous land ownership however they were going to deal with it. They could ignore it, they could respect it and negotiate treaties, uh, you know, whatever they did, but they had to plant their flag first. Once they planted their flag first, then, um, you know, they could uh, go ahead and basically assert sovereignty and then try and figure out, which could they could figure out by just ignoring it, what sort of land rights or what sort of rights they wanted even to, to have, you know, to respect when it came to the indigenous inhabitants. So I think it's right to say it's a very pernicious document. You know, the courts in Australia and Canada have now said, we recognize that that's racist. And so uh, we don't want to follow the logic of discovery anymore. But in fact, their legal decisions are all, it's like a house of cards. And they all go back to a certain extent to the Marshall decisions in the U.S. that articulated the doctrine of discovery. And I think we're a long ways from, from getting rid of the doctrine of discovery. It's still the legal foundation of Canada, the United States, many countries in uh, the new world. Language and cultural revitalization is an important issue now across our country among Indigenous people. What are your thoughts on this issue? So I also um, absolutely think language and culture are very important. And I, I want to emphasize culture as well, recognizing that, that language is one of the basis of it. And this is what I would say. You know, one of the things I think that concerns me in my field is people often say, well, the Europeans were bad people. They came here, they took what they wanted, you know, and we have these charts on this side, it's the way white people think on this chart, it's the, the way indigenous people think or behave. And for me, that's not a strong enough explanation for actually what happened. So like, why does say the Canadian government, why did it develop the white paper? Why does it want to assimilate indigenous people? Why can't it just say, let's let bygones be bygones. We're controlling the country now anyway. So you practice your culture, you practice your language. You know, there's no issue there. There is an issue there because I would say indigenous culture in many of its core features contradict the values that Western culture are based on. And right now, Western culture is based is largely a capitalist culture. So it's a, cap, it's a culture based on ideas of people compete for resources, people compete with each other, you know, the wealthy should keep their wealth and, uh, you know, everyone else should just, you know, grin and bear it and try and work harder. And culture has to be organized around the demands of capital so that the things that you know, capital needs to grow, the things that it needs, like a, like clock time and, you know, surveying the land, all of these uh, processes are all very closely linked together to the underlying feature of our society, uh, which is that capital should grow. Indigenous cultures where, let's say, sharing and caring are, you know, not just words that people speak, but they're values that people have, they're ways that people live, 
you know, a nomadic lifestyle, even like, and people weren't permanently nomadic. They made seasonal uses of resources, but that's a very hard thing to do within a capitalist society. You know, basically, you have to report for duty wherever the duty is, wherever the work is. And, you know, when your mining town closes, you know, you should go to the next mining town. You shouldn't be attached to a specific piece of land. So for me, you know, people's attachment to land is part of their culture. People's practices, especially when they're out on the land, is a deep part of their culture. People's languages, I think, uh, contain a lot of this information, and the languages are disappearing. And so we're losing key element of the ability of people to access their own culture. Uh, I think this is um, a critical feature and probably the most important element of this of Canada today is the struggle over whether we actually find meaningful ways of encouraging you know, language and culture to thrive in the current context, or whether we stay in a kind of blind race to destroy every last vestige of it in as much as it sort of contradicts the way our society is organized. So for me, there's, of course, there's an intrinsic importance to every single Indigenous person who comes from a particular culture to try and keep their culture, you know, somehow to, to bear it and to pass it on to the children and stay connected to it as a source of pride, all of those things. But there's a larger global historical mission. So I'm going to put it this way. We use the term multiculturalism. Trudeau started using that term and had an official multicultural policy in the 70s. And what he wanted to do was make it seem like, you know, if you're a Ukrainian in Canada, if you're Vietnamese in Canada, if you're Quebecois in Canada, if you're Irish in Canada, and if you're this guy in Canada, you're all a part of this great multicultural, you know, tapestry. It all sounds pretty nice, but there's a huge difference between all of those other cultures and, let's say, the Niska. You know, so I'm Polish and Ukrainian. I don't speak any Polish or Ukrainian. I uh, like to eat kolopchis and pierogies. Food is one of the last cultural things that leaves us, actually. But, um, you know, uh, I don't speak either of those languages. I don't dress like a, you know, traditional Pole or Ukrainian. I don't know any of that. I don't know very much about that culture. Uh, and I might, I might be sad about that. It might personally be a loss for me. It's not a global historic loss because there are places where Polish language and culture are being practiced and are thriving. There are places where Vietnamese culture... Jamaican culture, any of the other cultures of multicultural Canada uh, and languages, they are thriving back in their homelands. This Canada is a homeland for Indigenous peoples. So if Niska culture disappears from Canada or Inuit culture or, uh, you know, Anishinaabek culture, there may be some Anishinaabek people in the States, there may be some Inuit people in Alaska, but we basically are losing those cultures globally. Whatever those cultures might be able to teach humanity is being rapidly, you know, forcibly disappeared. And so that I think is um, is a global tragedy actually. And we in Canada are on the front lines of that. And I think it's more urgent than ever before that we try and find affirmative measures, which in law, that's what Aboriginal rights is. It's an affirmative measure to, um, to see what we can do to allow those people who want to the ability to practice their culture. You know, in Japan, here's a very interesting little piece. There are indigenous peoples in Japan, but there's also people from, you know, who are attached to elements of ancient Japanese culture. They pay elders who have a practical skill to practice that skill, like making a flute or, or knowing a certain dance or whatever. Uh, people are actually paid for that knowledge and it's deeply, deeply respected. And, you know, in Canada, I think we treat our elders 
honestly, fairly dismally. And there's no thought of what's called intangible cultural heritage, which is what language is, or, you know, or the skills that people have. How do you set, you know, a proper beaver trap or whatever? We don't pay attention to those things. Um, and I think, so for me, language and cultural revitalization is the front line of what Canada is as a nation, period. And much of our society is organized to prevent language or cultural revitalization from happening. My last question for you, Peter, is uh, about reconciliation. You know, uh, this past couple of years, um, with all these um, children uh, being discovered in buried behind residential schools across Canada, and uh, the realization of the atrocities that have occurred over the many years upon uh, Indigenous people, uh, it's kind of uh, created an, an awakening uh, in this country about what's been happening to Indigenous people. And so the term reconciliation has, has come about and, and people have different ideas and different thoughts and opinions about reconciliation. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, what are your thoughts on reconciliation? How, how can we make Canada a better country, at least move toward in that direction? Yeah, so that's a complicated question. And there's sort of different kinds of answers that I would say. One thing I would say is that the courts themselves came up with the notion of reconciliation. The Supreme Court of Canada said uh, reconciliation is about Indigenous peoples' claims finding a way to fit within Canadian sovereignty. Uh, and I'm not happy with that definition or that understanding of reconciliation, but it's important to know that's that's where the courts have gone, and they've used that word. And it was partly that and partly the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that brought the term more to the forefront. So I don't want to see that kind of reconciliation where, you know, the mainstream of Canada just behaves like it normally does and Indigenous people find a way to fit their claims within that. That's, to me, not proper reconciliation. And much of what the government calls reconciliation falls under some version of that paradigm. I would say we do need some more meaningful reconciliation. And there's lots of different, you know, I'm, um, I guess I'm pessimistic about capitalism lasting very long. So I'm an anti-capitalist. And so for me, ultimately, reconciliation you know, means the end of this system that we have. It's time for it to change. Um, you know, it's created all these global problems that um, honestly, I think the strongest way of reconciling for me would be if we all learned from Indigenous ways of life and started adopting those values in the way we all lived. Not calling ourselves Indigenous peoples, but calling ourselves caring and sharing peoples and, you know, trying to learn from Indigenous peoples how to live a good ethical and a good rewarding lifestyle, a matsuwa. So as something for if the rest of society, I think, learned from Indigenous peoples and then brought that into the way in which, you know, we're living in the modern world today, I think there, something genuinely valuable could come of that. But that would involve, I would say, systemic change or revolution or something, you know, that doesn't seem to be on the foreseeable future. So within Canada, within the Canada that we have, I still think there are things we can do that would deserve to be called reconciliation. For example, in the numbered treaties, you know, I'm living in Treaty 1 territory right now. The numbered treaties almost all have clauses that support Indigenous people maintaining their way of life. And you have the land set aside for reserves and land set aside for crown uses like municipalities and so on. The rest of the land is now called crown land. 
I believe that what's called crown land should be jointly managed. Uh, you know, that Treaty First Nations have still special rights and special claim on lands they're supposedly surrendered, which have become crown lands, where there's, you know, nothing on that land. It's bush. But the governments of the provinces and the federal government, for that matter, they never saw a piece of bush that they didn't want to turn into something that's worth some money, even if it's a parking lot. You know, they like any other purpose than leaving the bush the bush is what the government wants to do. Build a mine, flood the land for a hydro project, cut all the wood down, build roads, build like anything, anything, anything except leaving it as bush. Right. And so if we if indigenous people had the right to have more of a say over what happened on crown lands, I think um, it's not ex as far as a land back process. It's a joint process. But I would say if I think about what's viable within the existing political reality that doesn't look like revolutionary change, then for me, reconciliation is about giving you know, more indigenous people, more control over more lands and waters, so that more people could live a land-based lifestyle, so that more people could show respect for that, and so that the language and culture would actually have homelands, not reserves, but homelands, where they could survive and hopefully thrive. Um, I don't think that's unattainable within the parameters of the existing political system, but it takes political will. There are, like right now, you know, extraction industries, the, the big money in Canada all depends upon having, you know, they just get a permit from the government, free access to the land. And then they'll have some environmental restrictions and they'll throw a little bit of change at a, the nearby First Nations communities to buy off the leadership often. And they just go ahead with their big plans. They're not paying the price of the land that they're destroying. And so I think um, there are very powerful interests that would not like to hear the suggestion that I, so you know it might seem fairly modest and reasonable and it's legal within the parameters of the treaties i would say it's a shows a far better understanding of the spirit of the treaties but uh it would take a lot of pressure just to achieve that as meaningful reconciliation so to me reconciliation becomes meaningful when the victimizing party if we want to use that language when the party responsible for the problem changes. They realize it's not just, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep behaving the same way I am, but I'm really, really sorry, and we're not those bad people, we won't do that. When they say there's a structure here, and we need to make some changes in the structure to really to show that we're sorry. We're going to do things differently. It's not like, okay, we're not building residential schools anymore, so that's all done with. It's residential schools are a part of a colonial totalizing system. So we have to find a way of stepping back from that and finding mechanisms that could be used to do that. And so one of them would be, you know, some better notion of indigenous people having more control over what's called crown lands, and which would I would say are still indigenous people's lands. That's a, a start about it, I would say. Spoken like a real professor. <laughs> yeah, too confusing, probably. Like, no, it's very interesting. That's, I've never heard that, like, that way of thinking before. And uh, I think it's... Uh, I think it's kind of wonderful and refreshing to to hear your ideas and your thoughts on that. I've been talking to Professor Peter Kolchinski from the University of Manitoba. He calls himself a bush doctor and a full professor from the Department of Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. Thank you for taking the time, Peter. And uh, on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation, I want to thank you. 
immensely for, for taking the time to do this with us today. Thank you. My pleasure, and you guys keep up the uh, very good work that you're doing. Roots and Hoots is produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For more podcasts like this, please visit our website at legacyofhope.ca.